0: All right, if you have your Bibles, why don't you open the book of Obadiah. Uh, Obadiah is a next-door neighbor to Amos among the 12 minor prophets. If you have, like I do, your famous Amos cookie wrapper from last week, kind of stuck in your Bible at Amos, if you can find that, you can find Amos, and you can find Obadiah. Uh, So Obadiah will be our text today. Obadiah is one of five books of the Bible that is one chapter in length. Four of them are in the New Testament. or Philemon second, third John and Jude. In the Old Testament there's one and that's Obadiah. Right? Now I've never preached a sermon from Obadiah. This is the first sermon I've ever preached from Obadiah. How many of you well it's the second time I've preached it today, but it's the first time I've ever preached from the book. How many of you have never heard a sermon from the book of Obadiah? All right, some of you. Yes, okay. Well, that's good for me. That means only will this be the first sermon You've heard from Obadiah, it'll be the best sermon <laughs> you've ever heard from the book of Obadiah. So I'm looking forward to that. Obadiah is known, I've, I've, I've entitled this message, The Family Feud Prophet. Okay? Why have I done that? Well, you know the three classic game shows, right? Will of Fortune, Jeopardy, Family Feud. How, we're going to decide today. How many, how many of you say that Will of Fortune is the best out of those three? Any Will of Fortune? Okay, well... Y'all need to go buy a vowel because that's not the best one. How many of you say Jeopardy is the best of the three? Okay. You know, you Jeopardy folks, y'all just think you're better than us, (laughs) don't you? You're smarter than us, right? You give your answer in the form of a question. Somebody told me one time, Jeopardy is Jesus' game show because you have to give an answer in the form of a question, and all in the Gospels, Jesus gives answers in the form of questions. Well, that's not the best one is a family feud, amen. How many say family feud? Come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I didn't know that was happening. All right, that's enough of that. You Well, that was a, I don't know if that was a surprise to you, that was a surprise to me. What in the world? You know, I almost skipped over and didn't do that. I almost didn't do that. Wow. I'm, I'm a little taken aback by that. I didn't know. Two people charging the pulpit. I didn't know what was going on. Well, Obadiah's not the family feud prophet because he's a host of the family feud. He's not the family feud prophet because he's prophesying about a family feud of, between the Hatfields and McCoys. But he is prophesying about a family feud that's 4,000 years old. 4,000 years ago... There were two brothers named Jacob and Esau. These two brothers were rivals from the womb, I'm telling you. Esau was the oldest, Jacob was the younger. Esau did not fear God, he didn't think about spiritual things. Jacob feared God, and he thought about spiritual things. Esau thought about more sensual things, not spiritual things. Esau was a a hungry, hairy hunter, an outdoorsman, right? like some of you guys hairy hunters okay (laughs) Jacob was a mama's boy he was a a trickster he just kind of stayed stayed back at home and in Genesis 25 we see this this rival at, at its at its at one of its pinnacles when Esau comes in from a long day of hunting and Esau is cooking some stew and or Jacob's cooking some stew and Esau is hungry And he wants some of Jacob's stew. And Jacob said, I'll give you the stew, but you have to sell me your birthright right now. And Esau said, well, what do I need that for? I'm about to die anyway. So he just kind of dismissed his birthright. Just kind of didn't even give it a second thought and just gave in to his appetite where the flesh flared up where he was hungry and just said, okay. And he sold his birthright. That's a a good lesson for us. Don't make decisions when you're angry, when you're hungry, or when the flesh flares up. That's good advice. And you'll you'll see in the Old Testament a phrase that says, Yahweh is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of who? Jacob. Because Esau sold his birthright. If Esau had not sold his birthright, it would have been Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. But he sold that to Jacob. So Jacob... In in a very unusual situation in that day, the oldest wasn't favored. The younger one was favored. Jacob was later named Israel, which means uh, people that wrestle with God. And that's certainly Israel's history of them wrestling with God. Esau would later be named Edom. And in verse 1 in Obadiah 1, you see Edom. So these are Esau's descendants. And they are gloating and they are boasting about uh, Jacob's descendants' suffering. And God has given them no approval to do so. So one brother is gloating and boasting over the suffering of another brother, his brother. And God says, This, no, this should not be. And that's why we have the book of Obadiah. So Obadiah is written to the Edomites as God is calling them out uh, for the sin of rejoicing when their brother has fallen. Think of them as a long-standing rival. Think of them like uh, the Red Sox and the Yankees. I mean, just for years have been rivals. Or the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. Just for years, they've been rivals. How do you know if someone's your rival? Well, for, for me, a Saints fan, our rival's the Falcons. And the reason I know that is because when your rival loses, if that's almost as good as your team winning, that's a rival. And that's what's going on between Jacob and Esau. Think, they're long-standing rivals. Think of them like, like Tupac and Biggie. Just long-standing rivals, right? They've been rivals a long time. And so we arrive at somewhere in the history. People really can't, scholars really can't put their finger on where. But this is another point in history where the rival is surfacing. Because Jacob is suffering, Esau is gloating, over their suffering. And so today I want to speak to you on the, on, on the with this with this overarching truth and it's God helps the humble. Okay? God helps the humble. This is the promise God is making to us from Obadiah. Yes, it's written to a group of people named the Edomites, but the message is God helps the humble. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves, and they know that they cannot help themselves. He helps the humble. And we see this. There's promises over and over again. In Psalm 18, God promises to save the humble. In Psalm 25, God promises to teach the humble. In 1 Peter 5, 5, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the who? The humble. Yes, in Proverbs 11, he promises wisdom to the humble. In Proverbs 15, he promises honor to the humble. In Matthew 18, 4, we just had uh, some children standing up here a moment ago, and Jesus looked at the children of his day, and he says, unless you become like one of these children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So God is saying, humble yourself like this child, and you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Jesus said, whoever humbles himself like a child will be the greatest. In the kingdom of hell, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The humble. God makes so many promises to the humble. He says whoever exalts himself will be humbled but whoever humbles himself will be what church? Exalted. So he makes promises to the humble. Here in Obadiah, the overarching promise is God helps the humble and I want to show you three ways that humility helps you and helps me. So first of all, humility helps us see our need for God. How many of you know you need God? You know that, right? Well, humility helps you to continue to know your need for God. Let's see how God does it or said it in Obadiah's day. Look at verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Now, the word vision means a revelation, a revelatory word. God is communicating to Obadiah for the Edomites. So there's a communication going through Obadiah from God. to you you'll see it in verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Let's see what he's communicating. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. So here's the report. Edom thinks they are a big deal. Edom would say, you know, we're kind of a big deal. That's what Edom would say to the nations. Hey, we're something else. We're a big deal. And God has risen up nation after nation to go against Edom to bring them down. Because they are lofty, they have a self-inflated view of themselves. Let's see it played out here in verse 2. Behold, I'll make you small among the nations. By the way, God followed through with that promise because in the Olympics, you will not see the Edomites. They're gone. God made them so small, they're gone. So we followed through on that. And so we heard a report from the Lord, verse 2, that you'll be small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised, verse 3. The pride of your heart. Somebody say pride. Okay, I, I want you to understand the Hebrew Word Behind this word pride is the word Z-A-D-E-N, transliterated into English. The root word is Z-I-D, it's Zid. And, and if, you, if you study that word, it means to boil over. So if you think about Esau and Jacob, Esau, when he saw that red stew boiling over, he was deceived and he gave his birthright up. And God is saying here to his descendants, the Edomites, Hey, your pride, the boiling over of your pride has deceived you. That's exactly what God says. So picture Esau being deceived by that boiling stew and he lost his birthright. So verse 3, the boiling up of your heart, the pride of your heart has deceived you, Edomites, Esau's descendants. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, your lofty dwelling. Now, here's a picture of Petra where Edom used to be, where the Edomites used to be, and there are high cliffs, and there are clefts in the rock. You see that cleft in the rock? Behind that rock was the ancient city, and those high, lofty mountains are where they lived on top of them. So nobody could touch them. Hey, we're we're up here. We're looking down on all of y'all. Y'all can't get to us. Y'all can't touch us. Our national security is secure. Our economy is the best. Our wealth is top-notch. There's no way anybody can touch us. And so the Bible says here in verse 3, Who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. See, the might thought, hey, we're, we're the wealthiest, most powerful nation. And when you think about creatures, there's no other creature that can get higher than a bird. No other creature nests higher than a winged creature a bird. And they say there's no other creature that can be higher than us. We're, we're aloft like the eagle. And God says, I'm not a creature. I'm the creator, and I will bring you down. Wow. Listen, here's, here's a strong We need to humble ourselves. We don't want God to humble us. I'm telling you, you do not want God to humble you. Humble yourself. And so this is a vision that God has for his people. I heard one pastor say it this way. When if, we, if we could see what God sees, then we would do what God says. Theologian and rapper Lecrae said it this way. You don't need blind people to proofread God's vision. And God's vision is simply this. Humble yourself or you will be humbled. By the what you say in your heart. John Stott said it this way at every point in our Christian walk, pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. So we need to beware of our own pride and our own heart. Remember, I mean, look at verse 3 again. Who say in your heart, somebody say, say. Somebody say in your heart, not with your lips. The Edomites were not going around boasting proudly and loudly with their lips that, man, I'm glad we're so better than that other nation. Man, I'm glad I'm, glad, I'm, glad I'm a better parent than they are. I'm glad my kids don't act like their kids. Man, I'm glad I've raised my kids in the, in the way of the Lord unlike they have. Or, I'm glad I'm not like that husband or that wife. They're not saying it with their lips. That, that's not the issue here. They're saying it in their heart. Zero percent of us would stand up here today and say, I don't need God. I think very few of us would say with our lips, God, I don't need you, I've got this. But every one of us say that in our heart. Every one of us. There's not one of us in here that does not say that with our heart. And here's the way we do it. It's a subtle way. When we are prayerless, when we do not pray, What we are saying to God is, God, I don't need you. That's what we're saying when we do not pray. God, I don't need you. I've got this. Don't need you, God. And and, and I've heard it said, and I've said it, I'll say it again. There's only two things we can do apart from God. Jack and squat. Jack, squat. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. We need him. And when we're prayerless, what we're saying is, we got this, God, I don't need you. And then when we're ungrateful, ingratitude. Ingratitude says that we don't need God's grace, that we've gotten where we are on our own without God. Man, these are subtle ways that we're profitable. You yeah, we might not be loud and proud with our pride, but, man, every one of us, every one of us are saying in our heart, God, I don't need you. God, I've gotten to where I am without you. It's my hard work. It's my intelligence. This gotten me here. And let's see why they're prideful in, in, in Obadiah's day. Verse 5. Somebody say verse 5. If thieves, come to, to, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how have you been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If great gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? In other words, when, when these things happen, when thieves come in, they don't take everything. They don't clean out a house completely. When, 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 great, when these great gatherers come, they leave gleanings behind. But, but here's what God says. Look at verse 6. How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure saw. He said, all of your stuff's going to be taken. I mean, you're going to be stripped completely naked. It's going to be stripped from you. Every bit of it is going to be gone. Why? Because they're putting their pride in their security. They're putting their pride in their wealth. A good lesson for us is this, church. God is not impressed with you. And God is not impressed with me. God is not impressed by your intelligence. He's not impressed by your wisdom. He's not impressed by your degrees or your education. He's not impressed by your bank account or your house or your possessions. He's not impressed with our military in America. He's not impressed with America America doesn't impress him. He's not impressed with our, with our economy, with your credit score, with the housing market, with health care, with business plans. He's not impressed at all. He's not impressed. Now, these are good things. These aren't bad things. What Edom had were not bad things. But what they did, they took these good things and they made them into God things. They were trusting in the blessing rather than trusting in the blesser. They were trusting in the gifts rather than trusting in the giver. That was their problem. And they were prideful about it. But not only do they take pride in that, look at verse 7. All your allies have driven you to your border. Some of us take a lot of pride in our social media. How many followers we have, how many likes we have. We take a lot of pride in that. God says, guess what? All that's going to be stripped away. All your allies have driven you to your border. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. In other words, don't put your trust in your networking, in your connections, in your so-called friends. Don't do it. That's why Jesus came as a friend of who? Sinners. Because he came as a true friend who laid down his life for you. And for me. But they're trusting in all these things, and they are not trusting in God. Look at verse 8. They keep going with their pride. Well, I not on that day declares the Lord destroy the wise men. They're trusting in their wisdom. So your wisdom's going to be taken away. Or verse 9, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Don't trust in the blessings, trust in the one who is blessing you, the Lord. Coach Chan, Chan Gailey was coaching in 1984, coaching the Troy State University Trojans, Division II. Uh, they were playing the championship game that week, and he was going out to practice. He won a national championship with them that year, and on that practice of the national championship week, he's walking out to the field, and as one of his assistants called and said, hey, you got a call from Sports Illustrated. It's on the phone. He said, well, I'm going to practice, but I'll come back and take the call. And on his way back to his office, his head's just spinning with all the possibilities. Man, we're going to get so much publicity in Sports Illustrated. Troy University is going to be put on the map. Man, I wonder if, if a three-page article is enough, or do we need to do like a five-page spread, or do I need to do an interview in my office or on the field, or where do I need to do that at? Or Man, I'm not, what kind of pose am I going to do for the cover of Sports Illustrated? I mean, all this is going through his mind. His head's just spinning with all these opportunities. He walks in, picks up the phone. And he said, yes, uh, hello. Uh, they said, is this Chan Gailey? He said, yes, it is, with confidence. Yes, this is Chan Gailey. And the person on the phone said, this is Sports Illustrated, and we're calling to let you know that your subscription has run out. Are you interested in renewing? I'm telling you what, if you, you're either humble or you will be humbled. Right? And here's what humility does for us. It helps us see our need for God. Secondly, humility helps us see the needs of others. There are other people in in and around you that need. I'm not saying they're needy people. I'm saying they have real needs. Uh, Look what happened in verse 10 through 14. This is Edom uh, whose brother Jacob has fallen uh, to Babylonian destruction. And look at verse 10. Because of the violence... Done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. Now, God is not saying, Edom, I'm going to punish you for someone else's evil action. He's saying, Edom, I'm going to punish you because of your equally evil inaction. Look at the next part. And you shall be cut off forever. Verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. Somebody say aloof. That's just a fun word to say, aloof. Aloof on that day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You didn't do anything about it. You just stood there, aloof to what was going on, indifferent to what was happening to your own brother. You had a lack of involvement in what was happening. And God says, because of that, you shall be cut off forever. Jesus said it this way. Because you did not give me drink when I was thirsty. You didn't give me food when I was hungry. You did not come and visit me when I was sick and in prison. You did not clothe me when I was naked. So you will be, you depart from me into that place that was prepared for the devil and his angels. Cut off. Eternal destruction. In the same way, God says in Obadiah's day, you're going to be cut off because you have stood aloof, indifferent, lack of involvement. See, the Bible says to do do good, to not withhold good, that when you have the opportunity to provide for a need and you have the means to do it, do it. There's some things you don't have to pray about. Do good when you can. See, the Pharisees had this idea that, that clean hands equal to clean heart. That, oh, your disciples did not wash their hands. They did not ceremonially clean their hands. That your hands have to be clean. If you have clean hands, you have a clean heart. That was the Pharisees' motto, clean hands, clean heart. But Jesus was the complete opposite. Jesus said, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. If you have a clean heart, then you're going to get your hands dirty in serving other people. It's going to happen. And so because their lack of involvement, they're going to be punished. But not only that, look at verse 12. They, they, they took it a step further. Not only did they not get involved, now they're rejoicing over the suffering. They're gloating and boasting. Look at verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. I mean, We just see him over and over again. In the day of their calamity, you're gloating, you're rejoicing, you're boasting. Listen, if you have a sibling... Uh, Students or children, don't boast and rejoice when your brother or sister gets in trouble. Right? This is Esau's brother, Edom's brother Jacob, suffering and they're rejoicing and gloating and boasting. And God says, you're going to be cut off forever. Look at verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives, not hand over survivors in the day of distress. Not only were they enjoying their fall, they were enslaving their fugitives and taking them back to the Babylonian captors. Now they're involved with, they're participating with the enemy in this. See, but if we practice humility, it helps us see that people need us and we need people. We need each other and people need us. It's what the church is all about. Man, I, I work out with a group of guys early in the mornings, a couple days a week, and I'm tell, they're trying to kill me. They're trying to kill me. Wednesday morning at, at Red Bank High School, we had a, a workout that we're supposed to time, and everybody's to time this workout, and it's a healthy competition is what it was. So it was something unusual. Normally we just work out, but this was a timed one, and so it was, a fi- it was five rounds of this particular workout and how it started at the starting line. There was a starting line, and you did 10 broad jumps, jump as far as you can for 10 yards, and then you did 10 burpees. 10 jump squats and 10 sit-ups. And you got up and broad jumped another 10 yards and did 10 burpees, 10 jump squats, 10 sit-ups. And then you broad jumped another 10 yards, did 10 more burpees, 10 more jump squats, 10 more sit-ups, got up and bear crawled, bear crawled, 30 yards back to the starting line. That was one round. Do that five times. I thought I was dead about after the second one somehow I finished I was one of the last ones to finish but there was a, a couple of guys behind me and, and, and normally we go to 6:15 I didn't finish till 6:17 and there was one behind me one guy behind me uh, that that was that finished last at least one and He was on. He was starting the fifth round, and I saw all these other five guys just kind of hanging around. They had finished, and 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 they were just uh, they weren't gloating over their time. They weren't, you know, saying, "I'm glad I'm not the last guy." Look at him; he's so slow. They weren't doing that. They weren't just cheering him on. They weren't just waiting for him to finish. I saw these five men who had just been through that brutal, brutal workout. They went to that starting line, and they got down with that man. And they did that last round with him. They added a whole other round and they did it with him every step of the way until he finished. And I had this thought. I think that is what the church is supposed to be. I think that's what we as followers of Christ are supposed to be about. right? And humility helps us do that. When we are humble, it opens our eyes to see the needs of others. Now the question is how do we do this? Because you and I both know The moment you start thinking about humility, I mean, in that second you start thinking about it, you get prideful. When you start thinking about how humble you are, immediately pride sets in, right? I mean, that happens. You start thinking about humility and how I achieved it, right? I mean, pride just sets in. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. The only way to be humble, the only way to stay humble, is to look at Christ. To look at our humility is to make it vanish. Like I said, the moment you look at your humility, it's gone and there's pride. Right? So how do we do this? How do we stay humble? How how do we humble ourselves and stay that way? Well, I'm grateful that we have an example in Christ and according to the scripture in Philippians 2, 4-11, it tells us all about how to have this mind among ourselves in Christ Jesus. And so the last point I want to share with you today is this. Seeing Jesus' humility helps us stay humble. We have to look to the cross. We have to consider Jesus. We have to look to Him. And seeing Jesus' humility helps us stay humble. And this is what Obadiah is talking about in the last part of this verse. When we look to the Lord, it helps us stay humble. Look at verse 15 in Obadiah, uh, chapter 1, the only chapter in the book. Verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Do you hear that, church? As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. There's hope for the house of Jacob. Listen to this. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor, zero survivors from the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel, shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephiroth shall possess the cities of the Negev. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion, to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And then Obadiah put his pen down. Because when he said the kingdom shall be the Lord's, there's no other enemy, there's no other threat. Listen, God doesn't have any rivals, amen? He doesn't have any rivals. He doesn't have any threats. He doesn't have any enemies that threaten him at all. I mean, sure he's got enemies, he opposes the proud, but they don't stand a chance against him. The kingdom is the Lord's, and then Obadiah just put his pen down. A couple of things I want to show you here about humility. Number one, there's a section around verse 16 that talks about drinking the wrath of God. Do you realize in the Garden of Gethsemane, like tonight up at the Point Church, we're going to do the Lord's Supper together. I'd encourage you to be there. We're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper. And it reminds us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus took the cup of the wrath of God, and he drank it. So here's the deal. You can be like the Edomites. okay? You can be like these nations that reject Christ. And you can drink the wrath of God. Or you can put your trust in Jesus who has already drunk the wrath of God for you. So that's your choice. Last thing I want to show you here in verse 21. You see the word Savior. Somebody say Savior's. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion. Now, God had kings. He had judges all through Israel's history that would save his people. Over and over and over and over and over again, God would send them to save them. And then one day, God himself stepped out of heaven. <laughs> God himself was born. He appeared in the most humble way, meek way, vulnerable way that any, any person could ever appear. He was born. <laughs> he appeared. As a newborn baby, he humbled himself. Not only in birth, but he humbled himself in this. That though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him and bestowed on the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow every tongue vest in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. that Jesus Christ, Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Man, how do we, how do we stay humble? We look to Christ. In fact, Jesus tells us how how we can stay humble is to look to him, to consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says about the poor. Do you remember what he said about the poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the what? The kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are those who are humble. (laughs) That's who the poor in spirit are. It's those who are humble humble. And so right here in verse 21 it says, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion. Well Jesus came telling his disciples every step of the way I'm going up to Jerusalem I'm going up to Calvary I'm going up to the cross so I can lay my life down for you. To spread out my arms to take nails in my hands and feet a crown of thorns on my head to soak the cross with my own blood, to die be buried But praise God, he rose from the dead and death was arrested. Amen? (laughs) Death was arrested and our life began. Hey, eternal life is not something you get one day. It's not something you get after you die. Eternal life is something that you get the moment you get saved. You get it in that moment, you get eternal life. And Jesus has already paid the penalty. And he says, hey, the poor in spirit are the ones that are going to inherit the kingdom of God that belongs to the Lord. Now what I want to do as a point of closing is I want you to take an inventory of your heart because I'll take you back to verse 3 and I'll show you that Edom was saying in their heart. So my question to you, what are you saying in your heart? What are you saying in your heart about you are you saying, man, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal? Are you saying that in your heart about you? What are you saying in your heart about God? God, I don't need you. What are you saying in your heart about other people? What are you saying in your heart? So, here's how we're going to close this up today. I'm going to read through. I got this from a ministry uh, called Revive Our Hearts, I think. And it's, it's not original with me. But it compares a proud heart. And a poor in spirit heart. So I'm just going to read some of these. And what I want you to do is take an inventory of your heart and see where you are prideful. Again, we're not going to say with our lips, God, we don't need you. But every one of us is saying it right now in our hearts. So here we go. Proud people focus on the failures of others. Poor in spirit people recognize their own spiritual needs. Proud people have a critical, fault-finding spirit. They look at others' faults through a microscope, and they look at their own through a telescope. Poor in spirit people forgive much because they've been forgiven. Proud people are self-righteous. They look down on others. Poor in spirit people esteem all others better than themselves. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Poor in spirit people have a dependent spirit relying on God and and others. Proud people have to prove that they are right. Poor-in-spirit people yield the right to be right. Proud people claim rights, they have a demanding spirit. Poor-in-spirit people yield their rights, they have a meek spirit. Proud people are self-protective of time, rights, reputation. Poor-in-spirit people are self-denying. Proud people desire to be served. Poor-in-spirit people serve. Proud people desire to be a success. Poor-in-spirit people are motivated to make others successful. Proud people desire self-advancement. Poor-in-spirit people desire to promote others. Proud people have a desire to be recognized and appreciated. Poor-in-spirit people, they're overwhelmingly thrilled that God would use them at all. Proud people are wounded when others are promoted. Poor in spirit people are eager for others to get all the credit. Proud people see themselves as a blessing to others. I'm a blessing to this church. This church is blessed to have me, is what a proud person would say. While A poor in spirit person doesn't see themselves deserving of serving. Proud people feel confident how much they know. I'm not suggesting that's Jeopardy folk, okay? (laughs) Poor in spirit people are humbled by what they have to learn. Proud people are quick to blame others. Poor in spirit people accept personal responsibility. Proud people are unapproachable. They're defensive when criticized. Poor in spirit people receive criticism with a humble, open spirit. Proud people work to protect their own image and reputation. Poor in spirit people are concerned with being authentic and real. Proud people are concerned with what people think. Poor in spirit people are concerned with what God knows. Proud people compare themselves to others. Poor in spirit people compare themselves to the holiness of God. Proud people are blind to their true heart condition. Poor in spirit people, they walk in the light. Proud people didn't... Don't think they need to repent. Poor in spirit people live in a constant state of re- a posture of repentance. Proud people don't think they need revival. Everybody else does. Poor in spirit people continually sense their need for revival. I believe, I studied Billy Graham in my PhD. I studied a lot of his, his life in ministry. And I believe his greatest attribute for... For Billy Graham was his humility above all else. A guy that had every right to be prideful and proud was the most humble man from others' testimonies. He humbled himself. The Bible says that we're saved by grace through faith. And let me ask you a question. If we're saved by grace through faith and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, then who does that suggest is able to be saved? The proud or the humble? It seems to me the humble. If he gives grace to the humble, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not, it's not a work that you do. It is, it's the work of God. Amen. So if you're here today and you've never been saved, the problem is you haven't humbled yourself, pushed that pride aside, and said, yes, I'm ready to trust Christ. I need the Lord. I need the Lord. You don't need another relationship. You don't need another job. You don't need another wife or husband. You don't need another family. You don't need another career. You don't need another degree. What you need is Jesus. That's what you need. You need Him. And if you'll humble yourself, He will (laughs) give you grace to be saved today. And I pray that you'll open your heart and do that. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you'll be saved. If you call upon his name, uh, you'll be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's for you, unbeliever. We're going to have a moment of uh, of invitation here in a moment. You're going to stand with us in just a second, not yet, and our ministers, pastors will be down front and you'll come and say, yes, I'm ready to do that. For everybody else in the room, let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to stand up And pride is going to keep you where you are. Because you're prideful, you're not going to step out and come to these steps, and you're not going to pour your heart out to God, and you're not going to say, God, this is what I'm saying about me, that I'm all that, that I'm a big deal. This is what I'm saying about God, that I don't need you. And this is what I'm saying about everybody else, that they can find help from somebody else. What I'm encouraging you to do is to push all that pride aside. And whatever God is laying on your heart to come and confess, because you know your heart, I don't. Then just come and do that. Man, just make an effort. You can come gather anywhere around this place down here and just just lay it out to the Lord, man. Show Him that you're serious and you're taking Him seriously and you do not want to have a proud heart. You want to have a poor in spirit heart. So let's do that together.